Hello, my name is Thomas. Welcome to this special episode of British Culture Albion Never Dies, looking at the very British origins of Halloween. I'm joined by my good friend Kane. You may have heard him before as we did our deep dive into tea and our deep dive into British men's wardrobes. And we also had a shallow dive into St George's Day a little while ago. He has done a huge amount of research which he presents here and he has a special interest in these cultural traditions. You may have seen his videos on YouTube. The channel name is Videos by Kane. He's done some great videos looking at Chinese folk religions and he rarely applies that same kind of scholarly insight to here. And I really, really appreciate it. So please do check out those videos. There's links to them in the show notes. And we do reference one video in particular, which I give a link to, called the Hungry Ghost Festival, which is a, a Chinese festival, not directly related, but perhaps thematically related. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hello, Kane. Thank you very much for joining me once again. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's been a while, right? I was actually just thinking, the last episode we did was about St. George's Day, wasn't it? Was the last one before that the Christmas one? I think so, yeah. It's been a, so this been a is while. the third in a row that we're going to be doing about a, a holiday. And for all of the listeners uh, who can't stand the suspense, today's episode is about the history of Halloween. Absolutely. So you've been looking heavily into the origins of this holiday. Yeah, well, I think this is a really interesting one because I think almost everyone with a, a passing interest in British culture or the culture of the English speaking world has a bit of an idea about the history um, and the development of the customs related to most of our big holidays. Right. So everybody has some idea about Christmas. If you listen to our podcast episode, you have a great idea of, of Christmas. But yeah, everyone has some idea of Christmas. Everybody has a basic idea about um Easter, even St. George's Day, which is not, as we mentioned on that podcast episode, is not particularly our celebrated holiday today. I think most people know, they know the story of George the Dragon, they know it's a patron saint's day and so on. However, in my experience at least of talking to people, people seem to basically know nothing about Halloween. And I could understand that if this was a really, you know, small minority holiday that's perhaps only practiced um, or only celebrated by a certain group, you know, in a certain part of the country. But this is a pretty big holiday. I would say it's certainly bigger today than St. George's Day for most people. Um, for many younger people, I think those between the sort of age of 18 to 25, I imagine are much more likely to celebrate this than they are to celebrate Bonfire Night, which is the holiday that's coming up soon. The Bonfire Night, everyone knows the story behind Bonfire Night, right? But most people know basically nothing about Halloween. So I think it's a, it, it's a, for whatever reason, it's a holiday which, despite being quite popular, um, a lot of people don't know about. So it's a, a good subject for a podcast, I think. And many Brits, I believe, would associate it with the United States more than ourselves. Yeah, 100%. In fact, um, I spoke to a few people um, you know, over the last week that I'm going to do this podcast episode, and every one of them thought it was an American holiday. Not a single person had any knowledge of the fact that it, it has its origins in the British Isles. Now, look, it is not untrue to say that it's an American holiday. For the most part, the way in which Halloween is celebrated today is because of the globalization of American culture. And the reason why Halloween is so popular today in the UK is because of American culture. But it's kind of an American re-import, if you understand what I mean. We've, we've re-imported it back to the country. It didn't originate in the US. And many of the, the customs that we um, 
many of the ways in which it's celebrated today have their origins in much older practices of the British Isles. So, yeah, I, th I think that is very interesting that we do just think it's it's an American thing, even though it actually comes, you know, from the British Isles. And I asked you actually, uh, Thomas, you obviously have uh, an American wife. What did she think about Halloween and its origins or did she just not think about it at all? Like many Americans, she felt that it was probably an influence from Mexico because, okay. of, the, because of the Day of the Dead. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I've heard that one before. I've heard Americans saying they thought that it was basically an Americanization of the the Mexican holiday Day of the Dead, which which it's not. That's a completely separate holiday. Now, that's not to say that that holiday may not have influenced some of the ways in which Halloween is celebrated, particularly with uh, putting on that traditional face paint, which you wore, right, to a, a Halloween. Well, I wore the mask. So. Oh, you interesting. The mask. So I wore the the James Bond Spectre outfit. Funnily enough, in San Diego, I was probably looking the more Mexican out of all the people on this border town. Now, was I right in thinking, because I think you said this to me once in the past, that besides that recent experience of celebrating Halloween, the only other time you celebrated Halloween was with me when we were both young children? Yes. Uh, I think uh, where we were living, I think the community around you decided that, oh, we'll let the kids do trick or treat because we'd seen it on TV. So I think kind of we were kind of pioneers in our right. area. I'm pretty sure it's the first year it was done. Um, in that area it may well have been yeah we certainly i mean that was um despite our our youthful good looks we're, we're not that young and that would have been quite <laughs> some time ago so we probably were one of the pioneer groups at least in that part of the country maybe you know yeah yeah and i know that my parents had lived in germany uh, where you get kind of british and american quarters and so on um so it was something that was done by the american families not done by the british families mm. uh, for most of the time they lived there yeah. And that's another thing. We spoke about how a lot of Americans don't realise that it's a, a British holiday. And a lot of British people mm. likewise don't realise it's a British holiday. I find a lot of young British people don't realise that in the in the UK, it's quite new. It's it's not a holiday that most people if you you know, if you're in your 20s now, if you speak to your parents and ask them, did you celebrate Halloween or did you even know anything about Halloween when you were younger? Depending on where you are in the country, but certainly if you're in England and the, the lowlands of Scotland, they'll probably say no, it wasn't celebrated yeah. at all. It just wasn't a thing. It's and when really... it is celebrated, I've noticed there's a significant difference. So the Americans that I, that I come across, especially in China, but also celebrating it in America, it's not a scary thing. It's a costume party. It could be superheroes. It could be chartered. You know, it's almost like a literary festival we have here in Yorkshire where the children dress up as their literary heroes. Um, it's more like that. Whereas in the UK, it's very much the Frankenstein, the vampire, the, you know, the scary creatures. We seem to be lagging behind America in that respect. Yeah, it is interesting. I would say that today the the holidays are celebrated almost identically. You know, you wouldn't notice much of a difference at a Halloween party in the UK or the US besides the accents, I suppose. But one of the big differences is that in a British Halloween party, everyone or almost everyone will be wearing something scary. Whereas yeah. in the US, you're right, there's a, a diversity of costumes. There often is scary. Plenty of people do dress up in scary stuff, but there's also likewise plenty of people just wearing superhero costumes and stuff. Just, just to add in one more country to the mix, because I know this is a very different issue, but in China, like where I lived in Shenzhen is, is kind of, open to the world in some respects. So they did start to import uh, Halloween to a point, especially young people. But what they imported was perhaps the scariest ones to the point where the Metro would refuse young people to get in because they're dressed <laughs> as horror creatures. Um, right, yeah, that's quite funny. I, that, I mean, that is perhaps an entirely different uh, topic is this sort of unique, <laughs> um, I don't know what you'd call it, cynicized 
Western culture, I'm not sure. But um, mm. but yeah, Halloween has been one of those ones that has been imported into China because it, it's fun, basically, right? It, it's yeah. fun for kids. Uh, that's the main reason why. But of course, it's taken on a, a quite unique, modern um, Chinese form, which is quite different than what you'd see elsewhere in the world, you know? Absolutely. Oh, one thing before we go on, just a, a point of language. In the US, it's called a costume party, isn't it? Mm, yeah. In the UK, we call it fancy dress. I also believe Irish people call it fancy dress. I'm not sure about Australians. Uh, perhaps any Australian listener can can get back to us on that. But I know Canadians and people from the US call it a costume party. But yeah, just to make your US listeners aware, if I say fancy dress, I'm referring to what they would call a costume party. This did actually cause a bit of an issue once. It was early in my time in China, and I was organizing a Halloween party for mostly for um, other expats from places like the US and the UK. And I said it was going to be a fancy dress party. And it wasn't until very close to the the party, um, the date of the party, that I realized that the, some of the Americans were intending to come in like bow ties and a suit, you know, because they thought fancy dress meant dress in a way that is fancy, right? Like it's yeah, like and it's logical, right? Fancy. Yeah, it, yeah, it makes it looks sense. fancy. <laughs> but actually, no, in, in British English, fancy dress means a costume party. And it doesn't specifically mean a Halloween costume party. You could have a fancy dress party at any time of the year. You know, it just means mm. wearing wearing a costume yeah okay so just keep that in mind another thing that i like to bring up before we begin is a disclaimer throughout this podcast i'm going to be referring to ireland and irish people and irish culture and i can already imagine people getting ready to angrily type on their keyboards kane ireland is not the uk irish people aren't british don't worry, listeners, I am fully aware that the Republic of Ireland is a completely separate and distinct country from the United Kingdom. I know that British and Irish culture are different. I know that Irish people are not British, save for those parts of dual nationality or something. That is not the reason why um, I'm, I'm discussing them in this podcast about British culture. The reason is, firstly, I'm going to be talking about things which predate by many centuries the existence of the nation states of Ireland and the United Kingdom and predate again, by many centuries, the existence of British national identity and Irish national identity. So, you know, we're, we're talking about things where it just doesn't make any sense to um, to talk about this being a British cultural thing or an Irish cultural thing when it's 2000 years ago, you know. Mm. Um, also, you know, for better or for worse, Ireland and the UK were united for a very long period in their history, firstly in a monarchical union, and then in a political union. And yes, of course, Irish and British culture is different, but there are, in fact, many more similarities between Irish and British culture than there are differences. And, you know, finally, I remember in one of your podcast episodes, you spoke about why did you choose to call the podcast Albion Never Dies rather mm. than just something like, you know, the UK Never Dies or something like that. And you made the point that you wanted it to be British culture in the very broadest possible sense, which would include, you know, the, the cultures of countries which... Um, have been influenced by the UK, so places like Canada and so on and so forth, and also the British Isles generally, of which Ireland is a part, right? So yeah, disclaimer out the way, when I say Irish, please don't think that I'm confusing Irish and British people, Irish and British culture. You know, I've explained the reason why I'm going to be. Thank you very much. And uh, of course, if people are angry, they can email me at albionnevdies at gmail.com and I'll forward everything on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, um, well, what's the saying about there's no such thing as bad press, right? I mean, if you want to go and spam and troll uh, Thomas's various accounts, I'm sure he won't mind. It'll encourage the algorithm to go there. But so let's get into it then with Halloween. It's, in fact, a much older holiday, or at least its origins are far older than, than many people probably imagine. 
Um, like all old holidays, the exact origins aren't clear. It developed over many centuries. There's there's no kind of time at which we can say that, you know, Halloween didn't exist before this time and it did exist after this time. What seems to be the the oldest thing that we can say perhaps had an influence on the modern holiday of Halloween is ancient um, Celtic celebrations that took place at the beginning of winter. So these were mostly celebrated by the, the Gaels of Ireland, and the most famous of these was Sarwin. Sarwin, by the way, if you're listening to this, isn't spelt how, how it sounds. It's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N. So if you want to go and Google this, make sure you use the correct spelling because you'll be searching for ages if you try and write Sarwin phonetically and you'll never find it. Sarwin was a festival which, as I said, took place at the beginning of winter. And the first thing we should say about Sarwin is that we actually know very little about it. I've, I've mentioned this before on podcast episodes that we've done. Whenever you're looking at history, the history of a celebration or something like that, be really skeptical of any kind of simple explanation, anything that says that, oh, we do this because a thousand years ago people did that. Mm. The fact is, history is a messy, complicated thing. When you're dealing with um, you know, a very long time ago, there is often very few records or in the case of Sarwin, for example, no records from the actual you know, ancient history. Perhaps it's comparable, for example, to when was the first handshake, because we have very little historical records of handshakes, because who on earth writes in a, in a truly important document? I reached out with my right hand. He took his right hand <laughs> and we clasped it and moved it up and down. Yeah. So there's no real origin that we know for sure of how long have we been doing handshakes? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you look online, you'll probably come across, for example, that, oh, the handshake was a Roman greeting to see that you didn't have a sword up your arm. And that's supposed to just, oh, that's it. Problem solved. We know how it <laughs> how it began. <laughs> but of course, you know, that's really not the case. Right. And it's the same um, when we're talking about something like this uh, and specifically when we're talking about Sarwin and its influence on Halloween. If you look around online, you'll come across things which essentially say the story goes like this halloween is a modern um christianized version of an ancient pagan festival called sarwin boom problem solved we can all go home the reality is that to be honest i don't think it's possible to draw a direct line between sarwin and halloween i think the influence on the practice that the, the influence that the practices of sarwin had on the modern day celebration of halloween are very, very little. It does seem that, you know, the holiday that we now have may have over hundreds of years developed uh, from a number of different things, one of which might be Sarwin, right? And uh, that's what we're going to talk about now. And as I said earlier, we don't actually know a lot about how Sarwin was celebrated or exactly what Sarwin was, because we're dealing with a pre-literate culture for a start, right? We're also dealing with a time when most buildings were, you know, built out of wood. But my point is we don't have a lot of uh, textual or archaeological evidence. So anytime you hear that story about Sarwin was the sort of original Halloween and, and so on and so forth, be skeptical. What we do know about Sarwin is that it was celebrated at the end of winter. It may have been a harvest festival. It may have been a winter festival. There are other people who think that it may have been the Celtic New Year. So that might have been when they celebrated transitioning into another year. And importantly for its impact on you know the future development of Halloween, it was believed to be a point in the year when the barrier between our world and other worlds became thinner. And as such, you know, the various entities that existed in the other worlds, which would include ghosts, but also things like fairies and so on, could more easily come through into our world and uh, you know interact with with the world of the living and so on. And so you can start to see there where this might turn into this idea that we have today of Halloween with ghosts and ghouls and so on and so forth. It seems that 
at, at Sarwin, there would be big political meetings. It may have been a time of the year when different you know, tribal and clan leaders would get together to, to discuss things. There would be drinking and feasting. Uh, there may also be contests, you know, games. We see this in, in other similar events that are held in other parts of the world, right? There, although this isn't certain, but there may have also been bonfires taking place. These may have been ritual ceremonial bonfires. I find that one quite interesting because it does seem that the people of the British Isles have used bonfires as a way to celebrate many different things. I mean, the the holiday that's coming up shortly after Halloween is bonfire night, right? When, of mm. course, it's called bonfire night, we have a bonfire. Now, again, we think of bonfire night now is just, uh, okay, well, we celebrate the bonfire. Maybe it's related to, you know, blowing up the Houses of Parliament. But if you actually look into the history of the reason we have bonfires, people sort of spontaneously lit them in celebration. It doesn't seem that they were making that connection of it being because Parliament was going to be blown up. It seemed that bonfires were already used as a way of celebrating. So it was natural to build bonfires to celebrate this new event. We also see bonfires um, used in on the 12th, which is a celebration by the Protestant community in Northern Ireland. They like bonfires. So, you know, it may well be the case that bonfires have long been used for whatever reason by the people of the British Isles as a way to mark important events. And that might go back to things such as Sarwen. So Sarwen spread from Ireland to Scotland. Uh, it's It was spread by a, a group of Irish people known as the Scotty or the Scoti. So uh, yeah, a, a part of, to go off a mini tangent here, a part of the history of the British Isles, which is often not spoke about, is the fact that people from Ireland actually invaded and colonised uh, part of Great Britain. The original inhabitants of what is today Scotland were the Picts. They were displaced and their culture was supplanted and their language was supplanted by Gaelic, which was brought over by invading tribes um, from Ireland. Yeah, but that's that's one <laughs> that's one that we don't seem to, to remember very often. But the reason we call it Scotland today is because it's the land of the Scotty, the Scoti, right? I'm not exactly sure what the pronunciation would be. Uh, in the same way that England is the land of the Angles, which was the Germanic tribe which invaded. And that's why we see this celebration, uh, Sarwin and, and other sort of win winter festivals appearing in Ireland and appearing in northern Scotland, but we don't see them appearing elsewhere in mainland Great Britain because the, the Scotty didn't make it that far, basically, they mm. only made it to Scotland. Now, I'm being hesitant about discussing how this celebration was marked. And the reason is because today there has been a movement towards um, Celtic reconstructionism, and we have a lot of like neo-pagan religions and so on and so forth. And many neo-pagans, particularly Celtic reconstructionists, celebrate Sarwin as a religious festival. Now, because it's celebrated that way today, people often just automatically assume that that's how it was celebrated in the past. So when you research Sarwin, you'll find a lot of information which is related really to the modern celebration of Sarwin. And it's not clear that much of that modern celebration is actually in any way linked to the historical celebration. In fact, it may well not have been a religious event. It may have been not exactly secular because the concept of secularism didn't exist back then, but it may not have had overtly religious undertones. In fact, the only doc, the only historic documentary evidence of it being a pagan religious festival comes from um, a work by Geoffrey Keating, which was written in the 1600s, which is long after Sarwin would have been celebrated, you know, routinely by people, because this is well after the, the British Isles have been Christianized. And also in that work, he doesn't cite any of his sources. So it doesn't mean he necessarily made it up. Maybe he just you know, didn't mm. happen to mention where he'd he'd found the information. But 
my point is that I don't want to dwell too much on its religious significance because it just doesn't seem like there's a great deal of evidence to suggest to be either for or against the fact that it was a religious celebration. What we can say is it was a celebration that took place at the beginning of winter. It was very important to the people of Ireland and then later the people of Northern Scotland. It was a time when it was believed that the barrier between our world and the other world would become thinner and therefore spirits, fairies and other kinds of you know entities would be able to roam amongst us. We know about that mostly through Irish mythology. There's a lot of old stories that are set around Sarwin. Um, but besides that, I don't think we can really say a great deal about this holiday. So again, its impact on the modern day celebration of Halloween, perhaps not as much as is often stated. But nevertheless, what we do see is modern Halloween celebrations develop in Ireland and develop in Northern Scotland. That doesn't seem like it's just a coincidence. You know, it seems mm. to be that there is obviously these modern celebrations have their roots in much older Irish and Scottish traditions, which probably go back to these sort of celebrations, you know, like Sarwen. And there may have been other similar celebrations taking place at this time of the year. Okay. <laughs> So getting on now to Halloween, and the first thing we should talk about is the word. And some people listening to this probably already know where the word comes from. But for those who don't, the word is a contraction. It's a contraction of All Hallows' Eve. That's because it is celebrated on the evening before All Hallows' Day. All Hallows' Day is just an older term for All Saints' Day, which is still a very important celebration day in the Catholic Church and also in the, the Anglican Communion and many other churches around the world. All Saints' Day, as the name suggests, is the day which Christians are supposed to venerate um, and pray to all saints, right? Also often all martyrs. And All Saints' Day is followed by All Souls' Day. All Souls' Day is a, a Catholic day of worship. Again, it's marked uh, in other churches as well. And it's a day to pray for the recently deceased. So, of course, in, in Catholic theology, it's believed that when somebody dies, they don't go immediately to heaven or hell. They go to purgatory first and you can speed up their their movement through purgatory by praying to them so we have all saints day to pray to and venerate saints followed by all souls day and uh the evening before that is basically all saints eve or all hallows eve and these three days together are called hallow mass or sometimes all hallow tide so all hallows eve is contracted to make the word halloween which is how we refer to the holiday today Join pilot and adventurer Fernando Pino as he takes you on journeys to discover exciting destinations across the UK and Europe. You'll fly with him to hidden gems and experience local culture, from bustling streets to serene hideaways and the best places to eat, sleep and play. Travel Plans is more than a podcast. It's your ticket to exploring the world and its history with a friend. In this episode, we are flying to discover a beachside paradise perfect for the whole family. Discover golden sands, activities galore, and even free childcare so you get your own break too. <sighs> Why am I still here? Thank you very much. And just kind of to, to press home the significance of that, um, I knew a, a Church of England canon who went uh, to spend, I think, a week or two weeks at a, uh, a Catholic monastery in Ireland and was told, you know, very strictly, we only drink on saints' days. <laughs> right. So every day. <laughs> every day, every day. Yeah. So it just kind of impresses when you celebrate all of them in one day. That must be a lot of drinking. Yeah, that must be a big celebration. <laughs> yeah, so 
the celebrating of special days on the evening before it is actually quite a common practice um, in in Christendom in Europe. You know, this survives today. For example, in in Germany, many of the Christmas celebrations are done on Christmas Eve. Right? Mm. We spoke about this in that the podcast we did on the Christmas episode. Likewise, we see now in the secular celebration of New Year, we celebrate on New Year's Eve, not New Year's Day. So, the idea of of having a celebration before a, an important uh, festival day, having it on the evening. Is, is quite normal. It's something that is is often done. The idea of celebrating All Saints on one day, having an All Saints Day, is quite old. In fact, it's recorded as early as the fourth century that different churches would have All Saints Days. The thing is, though, there was no fixed date on which to do it. It wasn't set. And it seems that most churches actually did it usually around springtime. That's when they would have been having their All Saints Day. It seems that from the 800s, there is evidence of churches in Ireland and Northumbria. And the kingdom of Northumbria is today uh, northern England and, and lowland Scotland, I believe. I'm not 100% on the geography there, but nevertheless, it's, it's the, the north part mm -hmm. close to Scotland. And yeah, from the 800s onwards, there is evidence that churches were celebrating All Saints Day on first of november which would make halloween the 31st of october as it is today and again that gives more um weight to the idea that these older irish pagan pre-christian ideas were influencing the christian holiday right because why would it be the irish churches as opposed to the spanish churches which were choosing to celebrate all saints day on the first of november making halloween the 31st however it was in fact in the frankish empire which went on to become the holy uh, the Holy Roman Empire, right? It was the Frankish Empire that first fixed the date of All Saints Day and thus Halloween. And that was in 835. So again, if we're going to make the argument that this is purely the result of um, older pre-Christian Irish traditions, then why would it be that it was the Frankish Empire that was the first to fix the date of this on the, the 1st of November, right? I mean, we maybe don't need to dwell on it too much because of course it's highly likely that the in the Frankish Empire, there would have also been pre-Christian traditions, which probably had celebrations at that time of the year. And there may have been a desire to you know, bring them in to the, the liturgical calendar so that people would start celebrating them in a Christian way. I mean, it's like I said, it's confusing when you look into history, right, and try and figure out how these things really began. It was around the 1100s when All Hallows Day became an official holy day of obligation, which is one of the most important days in the church calendar. And it still is today. And it was uh, fixed for November the 1st. And so ever since that, um, Halloween has been celebrated on the 31st of October. So we can sort of say that's that's not the beginning of Halloween, because, like I said, the the origins go back before then. But that's when we can really sort of start to think of 31st of October is this special celebration day where we celebrate, you know, before All Saints Day and before All Souls Day. But obviously at that time, you know, most of the modern ways in which we celebrate Halloween wouldn't be a thing. I don't think you could go back to the 1100s and see people doing the kinds of things that we see today. Nobody would be watching horror films, for example. So <laughs> I want to look now at the development of the most uh, common things that we associate with Halloween. And of course, I think the most famous one for everybody is trick or treat, right? You'll probably remember, certainly from China, that if somebody knows anything about Halloween, it's trick or treat. Yes, it yeah. is the sweetie festival. Yeah, around around this time of the year, you'd have children just running up to you. It, no costume. It might not even be Halloween day. Just running up to you and saying trick or treat as if it's some sort of incantation, which makes you spew <laughs> sweets to, upon them, you know. And it has me in my mind of, you know, do not accept sweets from strangers. Do not accept sweets <laughs> from strangers. Suddenly on this one day of the year, go to every stranger and get a sweet. Yeah, I'd ask them, yeah, to uh, to get sweets. So <clears throat> it, it's um it's certainly an interesting thing. Right. And it seems quite odd now. 
But I actually think when we put it into the context of other holidays celebrated by the people of the British Isles, I don't think it's that unusual. So we spoke, for example, during the St. George's Day podcast about mumming and mummers plays, which um, are plays where people would dress up in costume. Of course, in St. George's Day, they would dress up as George and the Dragon and they would reenact, um, you know, the famous scene from the myth. But on top of that, you also had mummers plays uh, at Christmas time. The earliest recorded evidence of a mummers play comes from 1296, which was at Christmas Day, and it was during the marriage of Edward I's daughter. There's a written record of there being mummers in the court, and there also being fiddlers in minstrels. Um, on top of that, we spoke as well in the episode we did about Christmas, about the development of, of caroling, right? Mm. Going to your, your neighbor's home, usually somebody was more well off than you, it might be your landlord, etc., and singing a song in return for some money or a bit of food. Now, the reason why I mentioned those is not to say that they had a direct impact on trick-or-treating, but just to make sort of people aware that if you put it into the context of the way in which British people, Irish people would celebrate holidays, the idea of dressing up and going to your neighbor's house to get something isn't that unusual, right? Yeah. It was, I mean, this we still have this today. Caroling, of course, is one example, but also penny for the guy, right? Mm. Going around to a neighbor's house and asking for a penny for, for the effigy that you've made. So it's not that unusual to think of at this important celebration time of the year, poorer people might go to their richer neighbors and ask for some food or some money. People might want to dress up. It's it's not that unusual when you put it into the broader context of, of British holidays. Yeah. And with, with the West Midlands, for example, we have the Morris dancers. Um, it's been in the news headlines, some of their traditions which are designed to hide their identity as they went to their rich neighbours to, to perform and to beg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the fact that this tradition would also develop around Halloween, you know, all Hallowtide is, I don't think, particularly unusual. It seems that the most direct kind of influence on the modern tradition of, of trick-or-treating is a Scottish tradition called guising. Guising is short for disguising, as in wearing a disguise. And the earliest accounts of this come from the 16th century. That doesn't mean that it began in the 16th century. It may be older. It's just that's when the first records exist. And Basically, it's what it sounds like. People would dress up in disguises. They would go to their neighbor's house. They might, um, you know, they might sing songs. They might say rhymes and so on. And they would expect something in return. This did happen in other parts of mainland Great Britain, but really not so much outside of the highlands of, of Scotland. It was more popular in Ireland, again, because of those two cultures, uh, you know, history, right? They, they came from the same people. Interestingly, there is a story actually in a journal from 1855, which talks about a man in Southern Ireland who dressed up as a white horse and led a load of young people around the town reciting rhymes and poems in exchange for food. The reason why I find that one interesting in particular is because the white horse is a really important um, thing a really important symbol, perhaps, in Irish mythology. And in fact, the old Gaelic um, god of, of death, it's the old pagan god of death in Irish culture, is called Don, and he's said to ride a white horse. So that might be evidence of how those pre-Christian ideas were continuing to influence this modern, ostensibly Christian celebration, right? Mm. Now, playing tricks, which is... Um, part of trick-or-treat. That's what the trick means. I mean, I've heard trick-or-treat described once as a juvenile extortion racket, which I thought was <laughs> a great way of doing it, right? Either give me a treat or I will cause some problems to you. That seems to be quite a modern 
creation. It doesn't seem like there's many records of that having been the case, you know, in, in former times. However, there are records of certain instances in Scotland where young people would become rowdy and cause problems if they weren't welcomed at people's homes. And again, you know, we have to imagine what this might have been like. There may have been, there almost certainly was drinking involved, right? You get a lot of young people together wearing disguises. When you wear a disguise, you are less inhibited because people don't know who you are. Maybe you've had a few beers. It's not hard to imagine that then resulting in people playing pranks, you know, doing tricks, causing trouble to those who don't welcome them and give them you know, food and so on, right? It isn't a British festival. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so although it doesn't seem that the actual, you know, explicit trick or treat is that old, nevertheless, you can see how it would have developed from older traditions. And when we celebrated together as children, that was something that came up of if we said trick or treat, uh, what if somebody said trick and demanded yeah. us that we do a magic trick for them? Was that, sorry, was that during uh, the... The party the celebration that you and i had when we were children yes when we were kids and there was a it stays in my mind there was a household who said okay you do a magic trick then i'll give you a treat <laughs> did like we a new one. we yeah we'd had to practice i think a few of us had to practice various magic tricks which you know they're, they're children's magnet tricks they they were not brilliant but nonetheless yeah. we had to work to get the sweets that's at great. least from one household yeah, that's brilliant. Just um, for the, the benefit of the listeners, Thomas has an incredible memory of um, our childhood, of his childhood. I don't. Most of my memories from that period are, are very, you know, blurry at best. Yeah, he often reminds me of things which I've completely forgotten. I didn't remember that, but I can certainly imagine it happening. Yeah, it's a really interesting understanding of it, isn't it? I mean, as I say, it was the first time it was done in the neighbourhood. So to have someone thinking, no, they have to, they have to work. Yeah, if tree. you it... trick or treat, fine, give me the, the trick. <laughs> that was something I remember explaining to Chinese people when I used to teach about this holiday um, as a teacher in China, is that the term trick or treat, it has a meaning. It's not just a mm. random, you know, set of syllables that get you sweets. And somebody could uh, you know, ask you for a trick, right? But also I think here trick or treat means as well that if you don't give me a treat, I will mm. play a trick on you. A word on that, because it did always remind me when the Chinese had this, you know, it's how cultures collide, right? Mm. Um, of when I was new in China and I think we had Chinese New Year coming up. And so I was sent along to a senior manager by friend and told to recite a certain phrase, Gong Shi Fa Chai Hong Bao Na Lai. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, have a new year. Give me money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did did he? The funny thing was, the senior manager immediately named the person. Was it her who sent you? Did she teach you that phrase? Yeah. <laughs> but it's my incantation for money. Yeah. So yeah, an incantation for money. I like that. Um. But yeah. So as I was saying, uh, it doesn't seem that playing tricks on people was a really integral part of the older version of this which is guising but nevertheless you can certainly imagine how it would have developed now another thing which likely perhaps contributed to the modern custom of trick or treat is souling which is in fact quite a bit older or at least the recorded evidence of it goes back further than guising souling though is a is a bit more similar to you know what we might consider to be sort of more traditional begging basically poorer people would go to the houses of more affluent people and they would ask for soul cakes soul cakes uh, despite being called cakes are actually more like biscuits they apparently have the consistency of shortbread i've never tried them myself they sound pretty good shortbread is great by the way if you are listening to this and you haven't tried shortbread 
do try some. We can maybe do an episode one time about British biscuits because I think that's something that is worth covering. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, back to the point. So richer people would make these soul cakes, which they would distribute as arms essentially to the poor. But in order for the poor to get them, they'd have to go to the houses of the richer people and, you know, ask for them. This may also include singing or saying some sort of poem. And this is something that was common across the UK, not only in the, the communities that would uh, do guising and also could trace the origins back, you know, further to these sort of pre-Christian traditions. It's also, or similar customs, not the same ones, but similar customs also exist elsewhere in Europe. You know, mm. again, it's not, it's hard for us to imagine today because we thankfully live in a world of so much abundance that the idea of having to knock on your neighbor's house to ask for food just seems absurd. But there was a, a point in history not that long ago where many, many people struggled to get food. So at times of celebration, you know, you could try to sort of play on the, the Christian idea of charity and get mm. your neighbors who have a bit more than you to give something to you. And that's why this is common. And we see this again, not just in at Halloween, we see it at other festivals as well. Um, like I said, this was common across the UK. In fact, it's even mentioned in the Shakespeare play, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. So there's a scene in that play where the character Speed is saying that he knows that Valentine, Valentine is in love. And Valentine asks, well, how do you know that I'm in love? And Speed starts to list all these things that he's doing that you know, make him know that he's in love, right? You know, so you're you're speaking this way, you're acting this way. And one of the things he says is you're pulling it, you're pulling like a beggar at Hallomas. And so this is obviously a reference to somebody begging for things that Hallomas apparently is, you know, this is one of the ways in which Valentine is behaving, which indicates that he's in love. But the interesting thing is that it was so popular that uh Shakespeare could reference it and be confident that mm. his audience would know exactly what he meant. Absolutely. And it just a word on the giving of arms you know, is why we often have pubs called, you know, the Shrewsbury Arms, which is normally spelt like, <laughs> like A-R-M-S. Arms, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the giving of arms. So we have an arms house, um, I guess, comparable to food banks now. But at the time, of mm, course, perhaps, smaller yeah. communities where people connect on a more individual level rather than kind of remove organisations and charities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact is, we just don't have so much of that kind of stuff um because mm. we've just progressed materially so much yeah. right that we, we don't need to which again is is absolutely brilliant i wouldn't want to live in a world where those kinds of things happen but nevertheless it, it did happen and it still does of course sadly happen in many countries around the world where people routinely have to go to their neighbor or or the mm. local community and ask for food interestingly this um i say you know you, you won't see this today i've never heard of anybody turning up at anybody's house asking for a soul cake however i did come across um an article written in 2001, claiming that this still continues in parts of Sheffield, of all places. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure why that's strange to me, but I don't know, I always imagine this kind of stuff when it does continue, it continues in like rural Cornwall or somewhere. Do you know what I mean? You don't imagine <laughs> Sheffield for the, um, those listening who don't know, Sheffield is a kind of a, a large post-industrial city. It's not the kind of place you usually associate with very old British traditions, mm. right? Um, yeah. So in 2001, somebody claimed that this still continued in Sheffield under the name Caking Night is yeah, what okay. it was called. I, I was skeptical when I heard this, so I decided to do a little bit of searching around the Internet. I couldn't find much. However, I did come across a post on a Sheffield forum in 2009 where somebody posted asking does anybody remember caking night i used to really like it when i was younger so at the very least there was one person in 2009 who 
claimed they used to partake in caking night when they were a kid. If ever I get to meet Sean Bean, is I he will from be Sheffield, asking he? him. I believe so, yeah. Okay. Well, I was going to say, you're closer to Sheffield than I am. I mean, if you happen to be in the area on the Halloween, just see if anybody's <laughs> taking caking night. I'll have to head down. And certainly, if anybody listening to this is from or has ever lived in Sheffield, definitely write Thomas if you've got opinions on this. Uh, whether you think it's it's definitely a thing that you can remember or you've heard of or whether you just think it's nonsense because i'd be really interested to know if if caking night does happen and also yeah. i'd be interested to know why it survived in sheffield whilst not having survived elsewhere in the uk yeah so that seems to be the, the development of trick-or-treat now the term trick-or-treat actually originated in canada and then it spread to the rest of north america and has been imported into the uk that's something i'm going to talk about later is how the the holiday as we know it today kind of went to the us and then came back to us here in britain so i'm going to leave that for the moment but yeah the term trick-or-treating is not a british term it's an american term however it's used to describe a custom which has its origins in very old practices which developed in the british isles now the next most famous thing i'm not sure if this is more famous or equally as famous as trick-or-treat i'm not sure but it's carving pumpkins right I and mean, what oh, would you okay, say yeah, more, yeah more I'd, I'd say they're comparable yeah I mean, i'd say especially you, like in english-speaking countries are comparable maybe in china less so yeah i mean it's an animal obviously we, we mentioned china a lot because we both lived there for a long time but it might seem strange to you listeners why we keep referring <laughs> to it but just to let anybody know who if they're new to the podcast thomas and i lived and worked in china mm. for a long time that's why we keep mentioning him. actually yeah you're right trick-or-treating is much more famous in china than than carving pumpkin lanterns. Because I remember when I used to teach classes about Halloween and I would show a pumpkin, a pre-carved pumpkin, and I'd ask, what do you think we do with pumpkins at Halloween? And very few people would say that we carved them. Most people would think that we ate them. They, would, they were getting confused between the you know the Thanksgiving tradition of pumpkin pie and they would think that we ate pumpkins at Halloween, which to be honest, sounds more reasonable eh, than carving them up into faces, right? Um, but nevertheless, <laughs> We don't really eat them, at least not in the British Isles. I'm not sure if Americans also eat pumpkins at Halloween time. Do you know? I shall await my inbox yeah, and, see. <laughs> and see what responses I get. So, yeah, I guess um, trick-or-treating is more famous. But nevertheless, pumpkin carving, you know, extremely famous. Now, the carving of vegetables seems to be an extremely ancient tradition. Mm. And it exists across the world in very diverse, unrelated cultures. So keep that in mind that there's no way we could say you know the first carved pumpkin like the first handshake it's it's far too old however the practice of carving a face particularly a scary face into a vegetable for halloween seems to be quite recent i couldn't find any sort of references that go back to before the 18th century so it seems to be a relatively new thing that it is done at halloween like i said you know we're talking here of traditions that would have been um, done by people anyway, and they're then just taking that tradition and attaching it to Halloween. So I'm not trying to claim it was invented in the, the 18th century, anything like that. But this tradition of pumpkin carving was, mm -hmm. you know, a relatively more modern event. Another interesting thing is the, the term jack-o'-lantern. This is not used even today by people in the UK for the most part. Would you agree? Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, we know what it is. We know what a jack-o'-lantern is because, of course, you know, we, we've watched American films and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But we never refer to these things as jack-o'-lanterns. We, in my memory at least, we just call them pumpkins, don't we? Yeah, yeah, a car yeah. pumpkin. I know the term from a video game and that's that. Right, yeah. That's so, why I got this term. I mean, 
in fact, it became a bit difficult when I was teaching this in China and I was trying to teach the, the British term because we often don't even say carved pumpkin or pumpkin lantern. Mm. We just say pumpkin. And that can be confusing yeah. because, of course, there are, there are actually two different things. There is a pumpkin and then there is a pumpkin lantern and they're quite different. right? Um, but we just call them all pumpkins. And I think the reason for this is, is because the term jack-o'-lantern is an Irish term. And of course, Irish mm. migrants took it to the US and, you know, that hasn't gotten to us. Right. So the term jack-o'-lantern, it means jack of the lantern. So again, it's just it's just a contraction. And it seems to be the result of an Irish folktale. Now, it's hard to exactly know. It is possible that the folktale may have been slightly rewritten to make it you know, appropriate and make it match with the custom. Again, these things are difficult. Uh, the first written evidence of this folktale seems to be relatively recent, but it may be a much older folktale. There are different versions of this tale. Um, but I, I'll give you the one which is, you know, more or less generally accepted is, is the most the most common one. It contains all the main facts. So basically, there was a guy called Jack in Ireland and he was famous for being a drunk and also just generally not a nice guy. He was, you know, sneaky. He cheated people and so on and so forth. And the devil became interested in him because, of course, that's the kind of people that the, the devil is interested in. So one day Jack is walking around and he's had a few beers and he meets the devil and the devil says, Jack, you know, you're a bad guy. You've done all these sins. So I'm here to take your soul down to hell. And Jack negotiates with the devil and he says, OK, look, fair enough. But before I go, can I just have one last beer? Satan says, OK, fine. So they go to a pub. He orders a beer. He drinks it. Jack says, well, I've got no money. Can you pay for the beer? Satan, of course, doesn't have any money. He doesn't generally carry carry cash. You know, <laughs> that's not his thing. Um, so Jack, being a smart guy, convinces Satan to turn himself into a silver coin to pay the bartender. And then once the bartender has taken the coin, uh, Satan can just turn himself back into Satan and then everything will be fine. Satan not the smartest guy, I suppose, turns himself into silver coin. Jack takes the silver coin, puts it into his pocket, and in his pocket, he has a crucifix. Of course, this is very uncomfortable for Satan. Satan can't turn himself back into himself, and he has to negotiate with Jack. And Jack says, well, look, I'll tell you what, give me 10 years, right? Don't come for my soul for 10 years, and I'll let you turn back into your normal form. Satan agrees, turns back. 10 years later, the time comes around. Satan comes again. Okay, Jack, it's time to take your soul. Jack says, fair enough, but I'm really hungry. Can I have as my final meal an apple? Satan obviously didn't learn his lesson the first time around, agrees to climb up a tree and grab an apple for Jack to have. As he climbs up the tree, Jack uses sticks to make crucifixes and puts them around the bottom of the tree. And so Satan is stuck up the tree. Satan again has to negotiate for how he can get off the tree. And Jack this time says, well, I'll let you off the tree if you agree to never ever take my soul to hell. Satan says, OK, fine, that's done. Of course, you know, Jack, like all of us, has to eventually die. Perhaps his liver gets destroyed from all the booze. I'm not sure. But anyway, he dies. He goes up to heaven. But of course, God is not going to take him because he's, a, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a glutton and a sinner and all sorts of stuff. And God says, no, you've got to go to hell. You're not welcome here. He goes to hell and he, he has to to enter into hell as his final you know, place that he needs to stay. But Satan says, well, no, I'm going to make good on my bargain and I'm never taking your soul. So as a result, he can't get into heaven and he can't get into hell. And he's forced to, round the earth, um, to roam the earth as a ghost. And apparently uh, Satan gave him an ember, a flame to light his way, which he put into some sort of lantern and is walking around carrying this lantern. And he's called Jack of the Lantern. And Thus, the story goes that that's why people carve lanterns in sort of, you know, inspired by his story, I suppose.
Moving is right up there with death and divorce in the Stress Olympics. But fear not, turn that box of woes into a crate of woes with moving tips in the Life Beyond Boxes podcast with Premium Q Moving. Dive into the world of hassle-free moves, learn tips and tricks to save on cash and your sanity. Say goodbye to those moving meltdowns and hello to the smooth sailings. Or should we say smooth movings? Tune into Life Beyond Boxes with Premium Q Moving on lifebeyondboxes.com or find us on your favorite podcast platform. And with us, unpack the secrets to a stress-free move. I love it. I've never heard that story before. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting story. I mean, again, it's one of those where is it a case of art imitating life, you know, in the same way mm. that um, Dickens is a Christmas carol it impacted a lot on the way that uh, Halloween was celebrated. You know, is it life imitating art? You know, who knows? But the fact is, yeah, that that is an old Irish folktale, which has obviously had some impact on this tradition of carving pumpkin lanterns. Another interesting thing, by the way, is that uh, pumpkins, of course, aren't native to the British Isles. They're a new world mm. vegetable. Right. So traditionally, the people of Ireland and also in, in Scotland, where this practice took place, would have used uh, Swedes, which we call turnips. Right. I don't know if you ever tried to carve a Swede. I actually have, because interestingly enough, in certain parts of China, when I first went there, right, which was quite some time ago, it wasn't that easy to get pumpkins because, again, they're not part of they're not from China. They're not part of traditional Chinese cuisine, although there are some nice Chinese pumpkin dishes. And just as a result, it's not that easy. To, if you go down to a normal vegetable market, you probably won't see pumpkins, you know, especially mm. in a smaller town, which is where I was when I first came there. And we had a big celebration for halloween and so we we got we did manage to get some pumpkins but we also got swedes uh watermelons we had a lot of children carving watermelons which i thought was brilliant but it's really 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 hard to carve a swede so um if you if you want to sort of celebrate in a more quote-unquote traditional way do do some swede carving but be warned you're going to need a really good solid knife because it takes a lot of work also if you go online and you google image search carve turnip calf swede i actually think they're a lot more scary than the model yeah. ones. have you seen the yeah, pictures? i absolutely agree i've seen the pictures and they are the stuff of nightmares some of them yeah I, mean... I think it's perhaps because it is so difficult to to carve them right they, they become kind of uncanny because whereas the new pumpkins often look very much like faces the old ones fall into that uncanny valley region where it's like too odd because you can't really carve the eyes properly and the, the mouth isn't straight you know I think with the the turnips, you know, you mentioned how difficult it is. I yeah, I know, I know, it's so difficult. I think they're getting their frustration, and their anger out by creating the most hideous faces. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why. Like, I'm going to make this really ugly. Um, so okay, that takes us to the next step, which is how did all of these kinds of traditions, you know, some of them with pre-Christian origins and so on, how did that develop into what we see today, which is halloween parties where everyone dresses up and watching horror films and all that kind of stuff and this is where the story shifts it shifts over to north america so what happens is i'm sure um pretty much everybody listening will know is that in the 18th and 19th century there were successive waves of immigrants from ireland and also from the highlands of scotland who went over to what is um well you know to went over to the us and went over to canada and they took those traditions with them. Now, the really interesting thing was that for the longest time, Halloween was still very much um, only celebrated by those communities. So if you were, you know, if you were from, uh, you know, an English Protestant family, for example, if you were a French or descendant of a French immigrant, you wouldn't have celebrated Halloween. It wasn't, at least not in this way. So you may have celebrated if you were French, mm. for example, because you might be Catholic. You may have celebrated Halloween, but you wouldn't have celebrated it in the way that we think of today as celebrating Halloween, right? 
So, it, yeah, for a long time, it was still just limited to those communities as it had been in the British Isles. It wasn't until the very late 19th century, early 20th century that it actually started to spread to other communities and begin to be celebrated by all of those um, in North America, as it is today, of course, it's celebrated by all of the, the different communities that exist in that place. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about how that all happened and the development of all these things, because firstly, it's it's a story in and of itself. It could get its own podcast episode. And also, this is not a podcast about American culture. It's a podcast about British culture. But suffice it to say, you know, all of the kind of modern traditions that we have of Halloween, whilst they were inspired by these older Irish and Northern Scottish traditions, they really became their own in the US, you know, and the the modern way in which we celebrate Halloween certainly can be said to be a sort of American creation, an American creation inspired by older traditions, but an American creation nonetheless. The interesting thing is, well, why is it now in the UK that we celebrate it? We essentially celebrate what can at least in some way be described as an American holiday, right? And this is something, as I said at the beginning of this podcast episode, that a lot of people don't know. It is quite a new thing. If you are in your 20s now, you've grown up with Halloween, speak to your parents or speak to anybody over the age of about 40. And especially if they're from, almost certainly if they're from England, if they're from the lowlands of Scotland, they're from Wales, they'll probably tell you that Halloween they might have known about it, they might have known the name, but it just wasn't a thing. Nobody celebrated it, right? And that's because, as I said, this was limited to certain communities, even within the UK. You know, the, the inhabitants of Northern Scotland aren't numerically a great deal of people, are they? You know, the, the vast majority of people live in the lowlands and live in England and live in Wales and so forth. So it was still, it was limited to those communities and it wasn't what we see today, which is the sort of American style of Halloween. And basically it was re-imported as a result of the globalization of American culture. There's an interesting thing which I actually learned from about from speaking to a, a friend of mine just last night, actually. So he's a bit older than than we are. And he says that, of course, when he was a kid, Halloween was a thing. But he remembers when it became a thing. And he says it was following the film E.T. So as I think most people who are listening to this have probably watched the film E.T., there's a scene in that where they're celebrating Halloween. They're going trick-or-treating. They dress up E.T. as a ghost. He says he remembers E.T., of course, was huge in the U.K., as it was in most of the English-speaking world. and he thinks that it was following Halloween that he started to see, sorry, following E.T., that he started to see more people celebrating Halloween yeah. because of the impact that that film had. Of course, it's this huge, you know, massively important part of the pop culture of the English speaking world. Right. And he he sort of puts that as the, the date when it was reimported into to the UK. Of course, I mean, I don't know. It would take too much research for me to try to figure that one out. But I think it's an interesting it theory. But it fits with me because my family remember it kind of not being a thing and then coming back to the UK and it being a thing. And E.T. was released when my family lived abroad. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, mm. the fact is it was re-imported and it was pop culture that did it. So, you know, mm. it, it's as good a, a good a reason as any. Is, is it too much to call it a Franken festival? Franken <laughs> festival, because the, the, <laughs> the mix. Um, I, I would like to call it a, a British-American co-production. That's what okay. I would like to call okay. it. Yeah. yeah, a bit like... Um, the polo shirt. If anybody wants to go back and listen to our episode we did about the history of British uh, menswear, I mentioned that I wasn't going to talk about the polo shirt because it wasn't exclusively British. It's a sort of British American co-production. Mm. I would say that Halloween is the same. You know, we started it off. Americans took it and they turned it into, you know, the, the thing that we know today. And then we re-imported it. Yeah, it is interesting. And and 
I think on another deep dive, I think it was the Christmas one, we were talking about how you know you go back to the ancient world, you don't have the same level of standardization. So although we're talking about origins being, say, from Ireland or from here or there, you know, what it might have been in what is now Cork and what it might have been in what is now Dublin could have been radically different because we didn't have that homogeneity. Yeah, I mean, again, to go back to Sarwin and why I didn't dwell on it too much, even though if you do some research into Halloween, you'll often hear it mentioned um, because, you know, we just don't know. We talk about Sarwin as if it was one thing, right? It's mm. almost certainly would have been celebrated in very different ways, depending on what part of Ireland you were from, you know, and, and what your local traditions were. I mean, this was something actually which I found uh very apparent in my studies of Chinese folk culture, which is, you know, mm. my other big interest, my other big cultural interest, right? Um, in China, a lot of people have ideas about traditional Chinese culture or Chinese folk culture, which you'll actually realize are not necessarily or almost certainly not universal. What they represent is your experience of a folk culture in one part of China. So, you know, the way in which a certain festival is celebrated in Fuzhou could be you know, extremely difficult to how it's celebrated in, you know, somewhere in Shandong or something like that. And likewise, there may be, there, well, not there, maybe there are festivals that only exist in certain towns and provinces and don't exist in others. You know, the dates, even of big festivals like um, Shaonian, Little New Year, there's a different date in mm. southern China to northern China. So uh, it, it would have certainly been the same in ancient, in the ancient British Isles. These winter festivals that we refer to as Sarwin, you know, there may have been groups that called them a different thing. There may have been groups that celebrated them. We talked about whether or not it was a religious celebration. Maybe for some groups, it was very overtly religious and contained you know, various religious ceremonies. And for other groups, it was just a what we would today call a secular celebration festival. You know, So we don't really know, which is one of the reasons why I didn't focus on it so much. Whereas today, of course, we do have this great standardization. And mm. You know, there's there's pros and cons to that, right? Variety is the spice of life. It can be a little bit sad that celebrating Halloween in, you know, somewhere in the UK is almost identical to how you celebrate it in the US. But there are also benefits to that, right? We can easily um, understand others' cultures and easily integrate into cultural practices of different English-speaking countries. Absolutely. And just, just to go back a bit, I mean, I've, I've asked you on to so many of these deep dives to talk about festivals. But if people want to find you, your channel videos by Kane does highlight some really interesting festivals in China. Yeah, if you are interested in this sort of thing, definitely a shameless plug from me. Definitely check out my YouTube channel, which is just videos by Kane. I actually have a video on there about the Chinese Hungry Ghost Festival, which isn't really in any way like Halloween. But at the very least, it's a festival which, um, you know, marks what is believed to be a point in the year when the barrier between the worlds is is thinner, much as, you know, Sarwin mm. did and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, if you, if you are interested in that kind of thing, do check me out. As for how Halloween is celebrated in the UK today, and if there are any differences with, you know, how it's celebrated out in the English-speaking speaking world, I don't think there is a great deal of difference. One thing that you pointed out earlier is the focus on it being about scary things. Like I said, it's still quite uncommon in the UK to go to a Halloween party and see someone wearing a costume that isn't scary, or at least not supposed to be scary. Another thing that I've often thought was quite unique about the way we celebrate it in the UK, but I don't actually know, and I'd like to appeal to your listeners in North America to get back in touch with you and, and let us know, is bobbing for apples. So bobbing for apples is something that you know I definitely used to do when I was a child at Halloween parties. It's very simple. You basically fill up a bucket with water and then you put some apples in it and you have to try and grab the apples only using your teeth. Of course, it's very difficult because the apples sink into the water. 
it's just a fun thing to do for kids, or at least that's what we do today. That actually has very, 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 very ancient origins. But can I cut in here? Because yes, it fascinates me. You know, we tend to think of apples and pears as being apple shaped and pear shaped, but obviously not all pears are what we think of as pear shaped, right? Some are apple shaped. The big difference is that apples generally float and that pears generally sink. So if someone invites you to go bobbing for pears, say no i didn't know that that's an interesting <laughs> bit of trivia i really didn't know that yeah that's really interesting um but so bobbing for apples though not bobbing for pears yeah is actually a very ancient tradition and one that may well have been done you know in these pre-christian uh celebrations such as sarwin and originally it was a form of divination i'm not exactly sure how it would have worked there's different theories but um a lot of people or a lot of the the textual evidence suggests that it was a way of trying to figure out who your future spouse might be or at what time you might get married. You know, we're talking about a time here when people, you know, were very much the immaterial world was part of their life and they very much believed in, in fate and, that you know, that spirits had an influence and so on. So the idea of, of divining wasn't an unusual thing for them. But, yeah, there was something about it would allow you to try to figure out who you're going to get married to. There may have been other reasons or other things that people were trying to work out, but it was a form of divination. And that is one which, like I said, has very, very ancient origins and has continued all the way through to today. And I know still in the UK, bobbing for apples is a very common thing, but I don't think it's popular in North America. However, mm. I haven't looked into it that much. So I would really um, yeah, I really ask that any North American listeners, if you're from Canada or the US, please get in touch with Thomas on a social media account or email. Just let us know, is bobbing for apples a common popular thing? Yeah, because I didn't come across it on the West Coast, but I have many friends on social media on the East Coast and, of course, Canada as well. And I know the traditions are really different. So, yeah, yeah I mean, please let me know. And the, the thing is. Of course, on the East Coast of America, that's where most of the, the Irish uh, settlers ended up. Right. So this was an ancient tradition practiced in Ireland. So it would be strange if they didn't bring that one over. But nevertheless, when mm. I spoke to Americans about Halloween, I've not heard them mention bobbing for apples ever. So, so. Whereas you and I did. Again, I have a clear memory of this. Party. I do remember we that. I do, do remember bobbing, bobbing for apples. apples. Yeah. Did we also do the one where you then try to get a sweet out of flour? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this yeah. is not this is not traditional, but it's something that people sometimes do today. Whereas basically after you've got the apple and your face is obviously soaking wet from the water, you then have to try and get a sweet, a piece of candy, um, North Americans would say, from a big bowl of flour. So obviously you just get flour stuck all over your face, right? That's it. You just get really gross, especially if you're wearing face paints because it's a Halloween party. It's pretty gross when you think about it now. I'm not sure in this sort of post-COVID world, many people would be happy with this practice, you know, all sharing a bucket of water and a load of flour, but I don't know. It was a more innocent time back then, wasn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we had a cake with candles and we all blew on it exactly. and then everyone ate it. Crazy. Yeah. Um, so there you go, listeners. I hope that you have enjoyed that and I hope that you are now a bit more informed. This wasn't as deep a dive perhaps as some of ours, but yeah, hopefully you know a little bit now. And please do get in touch with Thomas um, to answer some of the questions that I've asked because I would like to know. And I think that... You know, there's a limit to what you can research yourself, I think, if you're outside of a situation. So I feel like there's only so much I can learn about American culture without actually speaking to Americans. So if you can get back in touch with Thomas and let him know. If you are interested in hearing more of my voice, do check out my YouTube channel videos by Kane, where you'll find all sorts of videos about Chinese culture, if that's your thing. 
Absolutely. And I, I highly recommend them. And I know I've recommended them before, uh, especially looking at these different folk religions and different aspects of culture, which, again, is why I keep asking Kane to come on again and again, because there's nobody better. <laughs> well, thank sorry, you very much. Sorry. Let me rephrase that. Nobody does it better because that's the way Bond phrases it. <laughs> right. Well, thank, thank you very much. And I hope to be on to the next one. Although I'm not sure what festival we could do next. I feel like we've covered most of them now, haven't we? We'll have to keep discovering festivals, especially because there are so many folk festivals here exactly. in the UK. Yeah. You did mention Cornwall. Full of it down there, right? Yes, absolutely. So again, for listeners outside the UK, that's the, that's the bit that sticks out at the bottom. But for quite a lot of our history, going quite late into the medieval era, there was a forest which kind of cut it off from the rest of the UK. So it was actually a lot more disconnected than they look on the map. And quite frequently it was cut off. There was only one main road going through it. Um, yeah, so, it, it does so where, when the Angles invaded, they didn't quite get to those periphery areas. So mm. that's where you often see evidence of the, the pre-Anglicized culture of um, yeah. the UK. Possibly inspiration for J.R. Tolkien's Mirkwood. Oh, really? Because there's that one <laughs> road that goes through it. And of course, right. it's from the West Midlands. So it's kind of close, close enough uh, mm. to provide that kind of inspiration. And there's the people of Mirkwood and that kind of may have influenced. Um, right. Sorry, because of the people who lived in that forest who had a very strange and interesting reputation, which I feel we still get in English <laughs> humour. Yeah, of Cornwall. perhaps unfairly. But, um, but then again, I think the, the Cornish do have a strong sense of their, their local identity and they probably enjoy the fact that they're sometimes seen as somewhat different from the rest of England. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a subject for another podcast, I'm sure. OK. And perhaps if somebody else had knows a festival that they'd like us to cover, they can email me as well. Um, so that's albionneverdies at gmail.com or on uh, Instagram, Fleming Never Dies. But again, the real one to check out is your YouTube channel, Videos by Kane. That's C-A-I-N-E, by the way, for anybody listening. Cool. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for sharing all your research. Okay. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.